Welcome to episode 149 with my guest, Kathy Ladman. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code MENTAL. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. Oh, I'm stumbling already. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. Two hours of honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. It's also the Twitter name you can follow me at. Please go check out the website. You can join the forum, read blogs, take surveys, see how other people filled out surveys, support the show financially, uh, or send me an email. Um, let's get into it. I want to read a... Oh, I want to also mention that... Um, I think until the 13th, uh, I've been nominated for a Stitcher uh, Award, um, or I should say the show has been, and uh, I think voting is open until the 13th, and the the site that you can go put your vote in, and apparently you can vote every day, um, it's uh, stitcher.promotw.com. I tried putting the www there, and it won't find it if you include that, so you have to just put in stitcher.promotw.com You learn something new every day. God, I hope I'm not becoming one of those old people that's... How do you turn the internet on? This is an email I want to read from a listener who calls herself middle-aged mother of two. And she writes, Hi, Paul. I know that you mentioned uh, rain.org on your podcast. That's spelled R-A-I-N-N dot org, which stands for the Rape and Incest National Network. Uh, she writes, it, it dawned on me a few weeks ago that I should visit the website to find a support group. I'm almost two years into my healing journey. It started with me addressing the general anxiety disorder and panic disorder that I was suffering from. Once I got that under control, I realized that that might be correlated with the childhood sexual abuse that I survived. I was in desperate need of someone to talk to that specialized in healing trauma of that nature. I worked with other types of therapists and found the experience very frustrating. They couldn't, quote, find anything, quote, wrong with me. I'm a functional adult with a seemingly healthy lifestyle, but I still suffer from the consequences of the abuse, even if it's not obvious to the rest of the world. So about a month ago, I visited rain.org. That website referred me to a local practice with a 24-hour crisis hotline. I called the hotline, and the person who answered put me in touch with the therapist. They have a long wait list because their services are free. They're funded by the state and federal grants. I found a therapist who I really connect with. I had my first session with her today. She's knowledgeable, sharp, gentle, and nurturing. I feel like she understands me and has the ability to help me. I'm really excited about this next phase of healing. I feel more in touch with reality. I feel like I'm peeling away at the layers of armor I built around myself and that I'm tending to the wounds that I was protecting all these years. I want to share this with you so that people know there is help available out there. If they live in Chicagoland, there are two centers that are free of charge. My therapist works with children as well. Since many people that suffer from mental illness were sexually abused, I encourage them to consider addressing the abuse as part of their healing strategy. Thank you so much for that, for that email. 
This is from the uh, Struggle in a Sentence uh, survey. These next couple of ones are, I like to, I like to kick off the show with these. Um, this was filled out by a guy who calls himself Every, and he's between 16 and 19. Uh, about his depression, he writes, uh, it feels like a constant straight line in my mood's line chart that prevents it from reaching new heights. I really related to that one. Um, but his anxiety, every time my chest burns and it gets hard to breathe, I just feel like a thousand dark creatures are approaching me and I can't fight back because I can't see them. About his love addiction, he writes, I feel worthless for whoring myself out for that little brief moment in which that person will acknowledge me as their possible future partner even though I know it will never happen. And about his anger issues, I feel like a ruthless, horrible monster that can do anything to anyone, even someone who I love dearly. And the thought of injuring someone I love makes me want to die. This is the uh, same survey filled out by our friend uh, Chiba City Blues 141, who I believe uh, we read an earlier survey from him about his love addiction. Uh, oh, and he is uh, in his 20s. About his love addiction, if she only knew how much I loved her, my life could have purpose. About his sex addiction, fear that the last time I got laid is the last time I get laid. About his OCD, everyone else does, quote, this wrong. And uh, he, under the very rarely uh, filled out one of sexual bias, uh, he writes, men control the world, but women control men. This is same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself uh, Dismantle Repair. I believe we've also read a survey of hers. And uh, she's between 16 and 19. About her depression, to trudge through winter again and again while the rest of the world moves on to spring. Well, that is a poetic one. Um, About her anxiety, panic attacks, to know what it feels like to die, to drown, suffocate over and over. Um, and about cutting, a pressure building up below my skin and the need to cut it free. She has a way with words. Um, this is the same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Half Pint. She's in her 30s. About her codependency, I don't know how I am until I know how you are. Boy, that is great. Um, about her PTSD, short periods of fading out, numbing, freezing, that feel like little alien abduction experiences. And about her ADHD, most of my thoughts are like cross-sections of a full orchestral score flipping from one composition to the next while others seem able to hum a single tune from start to finish. And uh, finally, from Charlene, who is uh, in her 30s, about her depression, she writes, like a giant umbrella that opens at the wrong time. And about her anger issues, wanting to kick everyone's ass but wanting love at the same time. Oh God, I wish I didn't need to take meds. Flat out fucking auditory hallucinations. I would literally wake up running from my bed. I'm afraid that I'll pass my anger on to my son. I thought the gunman was my father. Afraid of not being able to make a living. Um, that's probably going to break his heart if he hears it, but that's that's the truth. They committed him to Bellevue. There was this fear that if I feel this pain, I wish someone could see what was going on and just help me, that it will kill me and I will die and I will drown. You can't think your way out of a thinking problem. And I cried the way that a baby cries cried like an animal. It makes me so mad at myself that I do that. The burden of perfectionism. And that's when I got to therapy. Let's talk about that. I was like, fuck it, I'm alive. I don't give a shit about anything. You are a shining example of what is best about human beings. I'm worried that the uh, Russian militia is coming over the hill. 
I know that. Uh, but uh, Alice, how you feeling? I'm pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here with Kathy Ladman, who I've probably only um, interacted with for maybe ten minutes total. Before, Is that true? Before this, yeah, backstage at some comedy gigs, wow. maybe. Maybe at Kevin. We would you have been at Kevin Meany's house for a party? Never. Oh no. Well, did you know Dave Anderson? No. Jeez, I'm. I'm no, we met at um, some local gig, and we were backstage, and I'd never met you before, hmm. but I'd always admired your comedy. Same here. And so I um, I went up to you, and I, and or you went up to me, I can't remember, but it. Um, I was so happy to, uh, to meet you, and I couldn't wait to quote my favorite joke that you do, which just alone made me think you would be a good guest. And the joke is... If you ever want to torture my dad, tie him up, and then in front of him, incorrectly refold a road, a road map. map. Yes. Yes. And I remember my father always loved, I think, being celebrated in my act, and as, as opposed to my mom, who has always hidden from the truth in my act. Um, but I did that joke. I think it may have even been my first Tonight Show. And then I was flying to do a cruise someplace and I don't know, someplace. And I was changing planes at JFK. And my parents said, well, we'll come see you. And it was before security. So they came right to the gate. And um, my dad handed me an, an envelope, a business envelope that was open. And inside of it was a New York City subway map that was <laughs> folded incorrectly. Oh, that's fantastic. I know. It was very sweet. He was happy. He was really happy. Uh, you've, you've been on The Tonight Show nine times. And you got to, to do it in the heyday, right? You, you yes, got to do it when Jenny Carson was the host. Steve Allen. I did it with Steve <laughs> Allen. <laughs> um, yeah, with Johnny. I did it like four, I think four times with Johnny. That was oh I can tell you as a as a comedian who um was I don't know for lack of a better word behind your your class group, yeah. yes behind your group because you were like a peer of Seinfeld and those other guys are just actually a little I was behind, behind him yeah. so I was I started in eighty one he started in the late seventies okay so I was I was a class behind him um, but there was a reverence that we had for your. Uh, especially after Carson went off the air because you got to do The Tonight Show before cable was really huge oh, and yeah. it was it could change your career overnight. Yeah, it didn't. But <laughs> <laughs> but, but your, it, no, but your money right. certainly went up being on The uh, yeah, Tonight Show. Yeah, it did, and then it went down. Um, Roseanne, that Mine went to, away. <laughs> actually, mine did go away. Let's stop, stop fucking around here. Yeah. Um, Roseanne, uh, I saw her do her first Tonight Show because I knew her from the Comedy Store. I remember it. And Karen Haber and I, we were all the women of the Comedy Store, or, or as they referred to us, the girls of the Comedy Store. And so Karen and I went to see Roseanne and cheer her on and bring her flowers for her first Tonight Show. And she came out and she was so nervous. I mean, she just killed. And she was so nervous that at, right at the end of her set, she spun on her heel and went right through the curtain again, just disappeared. And Johnny, I think, would have called her over. Absolutely, because it was one of the most memorable Tonight Show appearances I've great. ever seen. I remember the next day asking people, did you see that? That woman is going to be a star. Yeah, and, and Engelbert Humperdinck, I believe, <laughs> oh my was God, another guest. Old. I know, was a guest on the panel. And 
from that, she started opening for him. And very soon after that, she got her show. Oh, it, there was no like doubt that she was going to have a, a show created because her voice was singular. And and you could tell this is somebody who is representing a really repressed, unspoken for segment of the population. Yes, you know, mainly uh, housewives. I know. The timing, I mean, it was such a sweet spot. You know, it was such a right on moment. And she brought it, you know, she really brought it. The ca- I mean, everything about the show was great. The cast, the writing. I wrote on the show later on. Oh, you did? Yes. Um, For just one year, and it was insane. I bet. It was insane. She seems she like... Was insane. Yeah, I was going to say, she seems like a really high-maintenance person, yeah, but you know, lovely. But when I met her, initially, when we both moved to L.A., and we both did the same TV special together, which was um, the part of which was at, at the Comedy Store... She uh, was great. I mean, she was lovely. And then I remember seeing her like a year later at the comedy store. I hadn't seen her in a long time. And I remember hugging her and not being able to get my arms around her. She had gained 75 to 100 pounds. And she was, you know, in the midst of like this maelstrom, I think. And it, I think it made her crazy. Well, I mean, I'm sure she had the goods to, you know, you know, the the rich soil of craziness there, but it really was a lot to, for her to deal with. Yeah. And so, yeah, so I I worked there in '95, and dealt with, and you know, dealt with as as did many of the writers, a lot of insanity. Well, let's let's segue away from uh from show business and talk Good. about uh, about your your life and um you were raised where. I was raised in New York in Little Neck, Queens. I was born in 1955 on October 15th. Thank you for saying your age, by the way. Um, I I love when people share their their age, and it's it's an age when people, some people, don't want to share their <sighs> their age, especially women, especially women in the business. I know, I know. Yeah, I know that whole thing about oh, don't, don't ask a woman her age. You know, that's such that's that to me that's our that's so archaic, but it's very hard. Um, and I do share it on purpose. And a lot of people, um, especially in the business, will tell me that I'm foolish to do so. As a matter of fact, I'm going to let my gray grow out also, which I'm told is foolish. But I'm sick of it. I'm sick of hiding. There is just too much hiding that I do, you know. And I and I actually don't do a lot of hiding compared to the average person. I don't think. Did you but, used to? I don't. I don't think so. I don't think so. But it's the little insidious things that are painful. Like lately. I uh, have found myself when people ask me, colleagues will say, "How how how are you? How's it going?" I'm. I don't want to say great, and I don't want to say fine. I just want to tell them what's going on. And a lot of times after I say it, I think, "Oh God, that was a big mistake." And you know, I feel like after I'm I'm like I, I need to build up a callus to that because. Um, In what way? Because I don't want to give in to the fear 
of not being able to speak my truth. You know, I know I'm going to start crying here like immediately. And I can't believe you don't have tissues. <laughs> Would you not have tissues here? You know All good therapists have tissues. <laughs> I'm, but I'm not a therapist. I know, but you are, put, you're allowing, you're giving people the forum to do this like a therapist, not not that you're that you are a therapist, but I'm saying that you you you're allowing people to speak like this, and it's going to evoke tears. I mean, I'm sure that a lot of people cry here, right? Please, they do, <laughs> they do. But I usually call them a baby, and then I show them the door because I don't. There's no place for weakness on this show. You're right. I've changed my whole approach. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because it's scary. Uh, it's scary being honest and i think there was a no it's not exactly this it was whose quote was this it could have been emerson's quote it, it it's that and i can't remember it exactly something about being trying to be yourself in a world that wants you to be anything but or something like that um because nobody wants to hear how you really are i mean to me when you say how are you, so some, somebody says how are you, and you say fine. No, they don't. No one care. You know how are you? I have cancer. Oh, that's great. Okay, I really gotta go. Um, you know, I'm just late. It was great to see you. You look great. Um, you know, I don't think anybody really, really cares. And um, I mean, I guess it's a good way to filter out the people that you want to be with. But uh, I don't want to be somebody who I'm not and I don't want to perpetuate this uh, kind of constant role to play um, and maybe that means I'm not good at the business part of things or maybe it means that I have to carve my own niche and create my own business model in a way but I don't want to be that person, you know. I don't want to be that person. I think that there are people that want to know how you're doing, and there's people that don't want to know how you're doing. And okay, uh, I, yes, I'll buy that. And I, my mission, my personal mission for myself in the last twelve years since I got sober, has been letting more people into my life that want to know how I'm doing right. and not eliminating the other people, but keeping it as an acquaintance, as a, this isn't going to go beyond that. No need to open up for this person. I'm going to say fine when they ask how, how I'm doing. Right. Um, and I think for a lot of people, when they say, how you doing, it's, it's just kind of a more socially acceptable way of saying hi, where there isn't. Right. I find myself doing it. I, you know, if I'm having a day where I'm overstressed and, and I, there's times I don't want to know how that person is doing because maybe I've just been on the phone for four hours with somebody. Right. I don't know the last time I was on the phone. I've never been on <laughs> the phone for four, four, four hours. What are you, some kind of drug for, dealer? For, for four minutes. <laughs> um, 40 minutes maybe uh, with somebody who... You know, it requires a lot of uh, love and care and attention, and and maybe I'm a little, a little drained. So right. I, 
I understand and I, I think I'm the same way and, and wanting to be honest and feeling a little bit like a fraud when I'm having a day where I don't I don't want to be here. Right. Right. And I say I'm fine. Right. I mean, you know, I just had, and this is sort of, it's sort of new for me, I guess, because there's been a, I, I would say the past five years of my life have been incredibly traumatic for several reasons. And so I'm like where I've, I uh, I finally, you know, felt that I had found who I was in the 80s and, and have progressed and moved and enjoyed my life and my work and and um, my friends and, and a lot of things in my life, that sort of kind of fell apart for me. And I don't even know who I am anymore. And it's embarrassing. I mean, I really... <clears throat> and I don't want to, excuse me, <clears throat> I don't want to feel embarrassed about it. You know, why do I, why, why do I have to feel embarrassed about my life? You know. What in particular are you embarrassed about? Oh, God. That I had to sell my house, that I'm not making money, that I don't feel confident on stage, that I barely go on stage, that I barely work, um, that I don't like hanging out in clubs anymore, that I like being home with my daughter when she comes home from school. Um, What's the matter with that part? Um, well, because I feel like I should, and in the evening, I feel like I should be going out and performing somewhere. I mean, I used to perform like six nights a week. And I had to, initially, I had to force myself to take the seventh night off. Wow. Like, I'm gone. You really push yourself. I do really push myself. And now that I'm not pushing myself in the same way, I am beating myself up for not pushing myself. So... You know, like a very deep um, dissatisfaction with where I am in my life. Life, not I'm not as at a place of acceptance, which is where I need to be to move forward. You know, I'm still like you know I'm wrestling with the devil in a way, or whatever the fuck I'm wrestling with. Um, but. I mean, look, I'm anorexic. I've always pushed myself to an insane... And I'm doing a show about that now. I'm rehearsing it, uh, a solo show about my anorexia, and uh, which is probably the most important project that I'm doing right now because I think it's, you know, I think it's like, I think I have a chance to be of service and to hopefully be entertaining to some degree, I hope. Um, I don't see how it couldn't be. Well, I hope so. I mean, I really do hope so. But uh, I mean, there's know. no way I'm going to come see it, but <laughs> for other people. But, um, I would you know. To, I would love to see it. I'm a master at pushing myself. I am a master at it. You know, just to give you a little uh, 
idea of where I, I got down to under 85 pounds as an adult. Oh, my God. And currently, I probably weigh around 105, 110. And I'm thin now. Although I think I'm fat, as any good anorexic should. When we were walking here, you said, I'm so cold. And I said, you have no fat on your body. Of yeah, course well, you're cold. Yeah. I've got plenty of fat. Uh, <laughs> plenty of horrible how tall, fat. How tall are you? Uh, just, just about five, four and a half. Yeah. Just shy of five, five. And so are you happy with your body right now? I've never been happy with my body. I mean, I've had occasion where I've liked my body. Sometime, like in the 80s and the 90s, I've enjoyed my body. And I can look at myself in, in pictures and say, gee, I looked nice in a bathing suit then. But, oh, I hate looking at myself in a, in a bathing suit now. I rarely put one on. And, you know, now I have a kid to make fun of my body. Which is so convenient. Uh, you have a jiggly butt. And then, you know, and I have like this like skin on my forearms, which is sort of like like crepey and dry. It mm -hmm. almost looks like my aunt who lives in Florida. You know, it's just, although I'm using some good cream now that's helping a little bit. But it's still, it's, you know, I'm going to be 58 next week. So, you know, she, you know, points that out. And I made the mistake of pointing it out to her. And now she plays with it. Like when she's tired of playing a video game, she goes over to my arm and starts playing with that, you know. And, and how old is she? Ten. Yeah. God, she's so funny. So you were 48 when you had her? Well, uh, we adopted her. Oh, okay. Yeah, I tried to get pregnant at about 45 or so, and it didn't work out, but that was really fine because this really appealed to me. We adopted her from China. Yeah, you know, I've been told that anorexia is about control. Yes, what was your was your childhood like and and where did the do you feel like that's where the sense of lack of control came from yeah i mean it definitely starts with one's childhood and a lot of times it's um attributed to the mother in particular uh, although my father, I mean, I had like, my father w was very strict, like scary. He was scary. And, um, so I really had to, I mean, I was, I was afraid when I was a kid. I was always afraid. What were you afraid was going to happen? Well, he hit, he yelled. I was just afraid of his rage. <laughs> although, how, how often would his rage come out? Often, and it wasn't always directed towards us, but we could see it in life. And you never know when it's gonna come. Oh towards my God! You, you know when the, the New York telephone? Yes, when the phone bill came every month, it was in a gold envelope, like a gold Manila colored envelope. And when we'd see that in the mailbox, we're like, "Oh God!" You know, just everybody go hide <laughs> because it would be even no matter what it said, he would. I mean, it was his. Achilles heel the the utilities were his Achilles heel and um, you know there was nothing we could do to make that bill low enough and there were no boundaries there were no emotional boundaries you know there were no physical boundaries and no emotional boundaries growing up uh, in what way were there can you give me some examples of there not being emotional boundaries there was some I had no privacy you know like really no privacy to explore and like even like when I uh, 
you know, as a teenager, I wanted to um, uh, dress the way I wanted to dress, like any teenager. And um, and bell bottoms were really important, and long bell bottoms especially important and you needed to like you bought bell bottoms you didn't hem them and you wore them until they tore Mm -hmm. at the bottom and and that was the perfect length and my father who owned a bowling alley and dealt a lot with teenagers who used to hang out and he didn't like that grew to hate teenagers and didn't want me to look a certain way Arrogant was his big word. He didn't want me to look arrogant. And so occasionally he would be home when I was leaving for school and I would try to get out of the house before he um, stopped me, but occasionally he would, um, uh, I forget the word, but you know. uh, Cut you off at the pass? Sort of, yeah. And um, intercept, that's the word. And... uh, he would have me stand on that we had we had a split level house and he would have me stand on the top of the five or six steps that went up to the next level and to check the length of my pants and i would try to like hike them up a little bit and kind of like squeeze my legs together so i could cheat mm-hmm. a little uh and sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't and um, and if they if they were if they touched the floor, he said, "Go change your pants." And but not like that. He would scream, you know, yell it and scream it and threaten and. Mm. And then if I were to wear makeup, which I never wore a lot of, and this probably even caused me to wear less makeup. Although, you know, look at me now; I barely wear makeup ever. Um, he uh, would t- make me come outside to the back yard to see me in the daylight and look at my eye makeup. And if it was too much, he would say, "Wash, go wash it off." So I was like stripped of my um, identity in a way. And um, you know, he wouldn't let me hang out with my friends. And the key word being hang out, because that's what we would do. We would hang out at the candy store or something. He didn't want me to hang out there. And he, But he never sat down and said, you know, this is why I don't want you to hang out there. Because there's really nothing substantial that goes on there. A lot of kids start smoking and getting into things that aren't good for them. And I know you like your friends. And I want you to be with your friends. But not there. It's just not a good place. And that would have been so great to hear. But no, it was you know it was none of that. It was all intolerance and anger and 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 how what was your mom like? Just like my mom gives like no boundaries for feelings in a way. Like I was you know part of my show about my anorexia is my family therapy tapes that we had in 1978 when we were in all in therapy together, and I can remember like at one point like I'm. T- I'm my therapist is talking to me about something and I don't want, I don't, don't want you to feel this way or something. And my mother said, uh, she doesn't feel that. 
Wow. I know. And, and she has no idea that that's even um, just like inappropriate. You know, you don't say what another person feels. And then I can re- also remember like my mom saying um, uh, that I should wear a hat if it was cold out. I said, I'd say, I don't want to wear a hat. And the next the next sentence is, there, that looks nice. And, you know, at, you know, the hat is now on my head and she's completely ignored what I said. And, you know, and also for years, we've always had this conversation. It's been an argument at times. Today, I try to, I try, I really try to not be a child when I'm in this conversation with her. But, you know, it's, it's always around the high holidays, you know, the, the Jewish New Year. And she'll say, are you going to temple? And I'll say, this year I said, me? <laughs> and she said, yes, you're going to temple. I said, mom, I, I haven't been to temple and I can't even remember the last time I went to temple. Really? I thought you went a couple of years ago. I said, no, it's probably been about 30 years. Um, and so back and forth. I said, why don't you just, why don't you just enjoy yourself and let me deal with what I do? Well, I'm concerned about the lineage. You know, she's like, she thinks she is. She thinks she's so powerful, and she's such a control. She's such a controller. She thinks she is now going to perpetuate Judaism on her own. <laughs> so, I mean, that's just sort of like a little uh, example of what she's like, and and and. It, but it it goes on and on and on. You know what that sound means? A little tiny man is playing the harp. And it's time to give a sponsor some love. Uh, One of our sponsors for this week is uh, Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code MENTAL. Uh, And I checked it out. I signed up, and I am a a Squarespace person. Uh, Officially, as of uh, this week, it cost me 8 bucks a month. And uh, you can actually try it out for free, and then you can kind of navigate the software and uh, see how easy it is to put a website or portfolio together. And then you can make the decision whether or not you want to pay the uh, the $8 a month to uh, kind of make it go live. And it was so easy. I wanted to share my, my dog pictures with you guys. I used to be obsessive about taking dog pictures. And so I posted some of my favorite dog pictures. I created a site, and it's um, paul hyphen gilmartin.squarespace.com. So if you go to paul-gilmartin.squarespace.com, you'll get to see my uh, my Squarespace site and see some of my cool dog pictures. Um, yeah, I highly recommend it. They, they have great support. Uh, it's 24-7. Um, templates that you use, it's a lot of drag and drop, and uh, I just think it's, it's awesome. So again, um, Go to squarespace.com for a free trial and 10% off, and remember to use the offer code MENTAL. Squarespace, everything you need to create an exceptional website. And our uh, our other sponsor that uh, we want to give some love to is a Daily Burn. Uh, it, it is an online website that has a huge variety of workout videos uh, featuring, uh, you know, they've got... Uh, Tabata, they've got interval training, they've got yoga. Um, I I would like to see them add one-handed or two-handed masturbation, which can never be ruled out as a calorie burner. 
but I understand their reticence to to be progressive. Uh, getting back, it's super convenient. You can uh, you can decide uh, whether or not you want to pick a workout that has equipment or not. Um, they have programs ranging from as little as fifteen minutes to to an hour. And uh, the really cool thing is you can access your workout from anywhere uh, across multiple devices like Roku, iPad, iPhone, and uh, pretty soon they're going to have PS3 and Xbox. So um, for mental illness happy hour users, you can get the first 30 days free when you go to dailyburn.com slash happy hour. Once again, that's dailyburn.com slash happy hour. Uh, and would love it if you guys could sh- show support to uh, to these sponsors so that they keep advertising with the show. Daily Burn, the best fitness anywhere. People that are addicted to control, it and and I'm one of them. Mm-hmm. It uh, me too. It's a fight. It yeah. is a fight. It is every bit as real as alcoholism and drug addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's so annoying to the people around you because at least a drinker can go drink on their own, but the control person, you're their drink. Right, right. It requires another human being. Yeah. Yeah. So I I feel you. I feel yeah. that that feeling of you're not your own person and you're just, there's no protection. It's just... You can be gutted at any moment. You can be invaded at any moment. Oh, God. I mean, my mom has said things to me, and I still, I mean, like close to 58 years old, Paul, and it still, it still eviscerates me. Like, what are some things? I'm trying to think of the one that she said most recently. Well, you know what? It Okay. Okay. So I've been a comedian for 32 years, and I've been very successful. Um... I'm respected by many of my peers. You won the American Comedy Award in 1992, which That's was given right. to the uh, voted by your peers, right? And well, by, uh, actually, the year that I got it, I think it was voted by the audience. And, so. and, and wasn't it also club owners too? Maybe I think it. I think it was club Maybe. owners as well. But it was. Um, you know, uh, we all knew who won the award that year, and it yeah. was like a big deal. It, it was, was, it was, and I'm proud of it. And um, and I've done, you know, you know, like the to be on the, you know, the anniversary show of the Tonight Show was a huge honor, huge honor. And I mean, still, I don't feel, you know, inside, I don't feel deserving of it, but it was still. I mean, I'm, I'm like, I hate to like resort to this, but to the litany of the proof of my worth, but um, I, but I have all these things, and and I'm not, and I'm, you know, I'm going through a very, what feels like an a really long transition in my life and in my work, and it's been scary and frustrating and I'm not making money and I don't like that and um uh and my mom says uh uh the other oh yeah so I was on the phone with my mom she goes so you work are you making any money I said not right now but Tom is but what about you uh I hope I hope you're not did you did you I hope you haven't stopped trying I said Mom, why would you even say that? Of course not. 
and and then she said, you know, I hope you don't turn up your nose to other kinds of work. And, you know, that, that is it. When she says something like that, you know, I mean, a, f- a couple of years ago or let, not, but last year, I took a job. <sighs> a friend got me a job at this show where she was working, doing something that I'd never done before. And I thought, well, I'll check it out and see if I like it. And I hated it. The money was horrible. And I hated the work. I hated the environment. I hated the product, you know, the the actual type of show that it was. And I realized I don't want to do this. I just don't want to do this anymore. And when I was doing it, my mother was saying, you know, I had a dream the other day that you became an executive and, and, you know, I said, mom, that's not what I do. It's not what I do. And she still doesn't see who I am and what I do and why at this point in my life do I care about it? It so pisses me off that I care about it. What I she mean, thinks. Yeah. I mean, oh. It's insane. To and keep, my dad's to... dead and I care about, and I, and it's, he still psychically visits me, you know. I I have been told that it is like the strongest impulse in a human being is to want acceptance from your from your parents. And, and I don't know if murder would eliminate that. I mean, I know that there are people who've killed their parents, and I don't know if that helps even. Can you imagine like killing your parents and like still wanting their approval? I was like, oh, great. They're probably you know, now. I went and did this. Yeah. <laughs> Your mom would be laying there and, and, and look up at you and said, you couldn't have picked a smaller knife. Really? That's not <laughs> right. I used to dream. I mean, I used to have fantasies when I was a kid of, I can still see the drawer of shitty cooking knives that my that my parents had and and going into the drawer and then stabbing my parents (laughs) i had fantasies of it and that knife would never have done the job it would have awakened them and it would have annoyed them it was such a horrible (laughs) knife it's like what what's going on stop we're sleeping (laughs) thank you for sharing that because i there's a lot of people that take the the surveys um on the website that share they either look forward to their parents' death or feel nothing towards them being terminally sick and they hate themselves for it. And I feel like while that parent does deserve compassion because there's usually some type of sickness going on, the child should never feel guilty for feeling what they feel about the parent because... So often, it's the seeds that that parent have sowed. Right, right. But, you know, I've, look, I've been in therapy for so long. I mean, for 35, at least 35 years, if not longer. And, um, you know, I don't think I've even worked this through. Uh, and I would, I would like to be able to work this through before I'm gone. I mean, I'm, I'm very, but I mean, one of the, one of the uh, benefits 
of it is that I'm so hyper aware of my relationship with my daughter and what I, you know, offer her. And I, I'm, look, I've, I, and I know that I don't do everything really perfectly, um, but I know, I do know the things that I don't want to do, and I do listen to her. I really do listen to her. You let her explore on, on her own. I make, do. And make her own mistakes. Yes, not as much as I would like to, but none of the mistakes will be really, really, really messy <laughs> and well, require huge amounts of cleanup. <laughs> well, you know, I've, I, I've heard that good parenting is a combination of letting your child explore and also giving them consequences and establishing right. boundaries right. and 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 guiding them. And right. what a difficult line to draw when it, nobody has sat you down or there's nobody to go to and to say, what do I do on this one? Because it happens in an instant and mm -hmm. you've got to make that decision that could, I don't know about fuck them up for the rest of their lives, right. but certainly make a strong impression on yes, them. Yes, I know, because there are things that I remember so vividly from when I was so little. Um... Yeah, I mean, it really is like... What are, the, what are some things that you remember? Um, well, this one's in my show, but it's like, it's, oh my God, it's amazing. Well, you know, I, when I was at, uh, I went to sleepaway camp, as we called it, Becky's. So you, you're from the Midwest, right? Mm -hmm. Chicago? Yeah. Yeah. And um, do you know Karen Bork? I do. Yeah, Love Karen's, Karen. a, Karen's a great friend of mine. Yeah. Um, so funny. What yeah. a family. Um so, um, I, one year at sleepaway camp, and I don't know exactly why, what moved me to do this. I, I, uh, auditioned for the play and I got the lead. I was in, uh, Once Upon a Mattress. I was, uh, Princess Winifred. And one day during, uh, like rest period or something, whenever, you know, when everybody was in their bunks, uh. Um, the drama counselor and I were taking a walk and she asked me if I ever thought of being an actor when I grew up. I said, no. And she said, well, you're very talented. And I think you'd be really, really good at it. And I was like, wow. I mean, like nobody had ever, ever seen anything like that in me. And what that feel? What they feel like? It felt amazing. I was because I loved doing this, and I loved getting the laughs. Oh my god, I loved getting the laughs, and I knew how much I loved getting laughs. And I mean, I used to do impressions of teachers and stuff like that, and I got laughs from that, but never on this scale. Anyway, so and you, and you felt seen. Oh god, I definitely felt seen. I definitely felt seen. So listen to me telling you how you felt. That's right, Mom. No, but you're extrapolating, and, and yeah. that's different. But um, uh, several months later, I was at home with my mom. I was about, I guess I was about 13, because I think it was 1968, and we were watching the Academy Awards together. And it was the year that uh, Barbara Streisand and Funny Girl were up for awards. And 
I was, we were sitting down in the den and my mom was folding laundry, sitting down, folding laundry. And I was lying with my head on her lap and they showed a clip of her Streisand singing the song, Don't Run On My Parade. And, you know, it's, it's, I don't know if you know the movie well, but. What, what an ironic song for what I feel is about to happen. I know, it is ironic. It is very fitting. ironic. fitting, we yes. know which one. Um, and, oh man, I don't even know if I ever even thought of that. Or maybe I did and I forgot, but that's a great point. And um, may I use that in my show? May Absolutely. I, okay. And um, so the show, the number is, is an amazing, you know, show-stopping number. And um, it ends with this big helicopter shot in New York Harbor, and it pulls back, and she's, you know, holding onto the railing and singing that last note. And and after, after the song was over, I, I turned my head, and I looked up at my mom, and I said, you know, I, I never, I guess I never had discussed the show at camp or anything. Mm-hmm. I guess it was never, I don't recall that anyway. And so I looked up at my mom and I said, um, I can do that. And my mom said, oh no, she's very special. Oh my God. I know. And I mean, I mean, it's like, what the fuck kind of thing is that for a parent to say to a child at 13? What you say is, I think maybe you can, or, may, or maybe you can, or what makes you feel that way? That's a great thing that you feel like that. I mean, you know, and, I've, and I think I had brought it up to my mom, and I think she said, I just didn't want you to be disappointed. And that's everything, everything that my mom says and does is based in fear and and I understand that because I'm a, I am a very fear-based person and you know I'm married to a guy who's not at all or it comes out in different ways uh so it's an interesting you know it's an interesting reflection um and I get called on it a lot in 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 a in a good way um, but, oh God, that was a devastating thing, a devastating thing. And I still hear that in, in one way or another in my head. Oh no, she's very special. Yes, she is very special. But why can't I be special too? Why? Or tell your kid you, you know, you are, you are special. I know. She's special and you're special. Yeah. It's okay for you to pursue that dream, and even if that dream doesn't work out, you'll be special in something else. Right. But it's interesting, like the boyfriend I had right before Tom, I saw him, you know, I don't know, 10 years ago or so, maybe, and uh, he said something about my anger. I said, I said, do you, do you see me as an angry person? He said, oh, God, you could knock down a building. Wow, that was interesting to hear. What did that make you think or, or feel? <sighs> well, it just made me reflect a little bit. Um, I mean, I know that I have, you know, my anger. I mean, everybody has anger. and And I think that it's a matter of how you express it, yeah. really. And... 
I think I tend to express my anger mostly towards myself. Mostly. I mean, that to me sounds like anorexia, you know. Depression. Yeah, major depression, yeah. yeah. Do you, is there an arc to your anorexia or your depression? How did it first begin and what did... You know, it's interesting. Um, I always recall it starting the same the same incident and I don't know why and it doesn't really completely make sense to me but I had this best friend in college so funny I've been going through pictures for a project and I came across a lot of college photos and pictures of most of us you know looking very stoned and (laughs) having a pipe in our mouths and um uh, uh, that must have been euphoria to get away from that control and oh be on God, your own. It was so great. I saw a lot of pictures of my then best friend in college who really opened my eyes to so many wonderful things aesthetically that I never really had learned about art and dance and, and really loved it. But she was very spoiled and very you know, kind of bitchy, I guess. And I was um, connected to her. Just, you know, it was, I was just, we were inseparable. And what happened was, um, I guess this is in our junior year, maybe, um, or senior year. We, is that rain? It is. My God. Um, It sounds like this. (laughs) Um, uh, we were living in an apartment and it ended up that her sister moved in with some younger people and it was like, we didn't like living there. Like we, these, like all these younger kids kind of hanging out there and we couldn't get into the bathroom. And so I was just really unhappy about it. And I went home for the weekend and, and, uh, called her and we talked on the phone and she said, look, you do whatever you need to do, but I, um, I've decided I'm going to stay, but whatever you need to do is great. I said, okay. So I decided I'm going to look for an apartment. So I looked and I found one and I told her and she turned on me like, I I couldn't believe it. I was like set up and you know, and I don't know how, or I still don't know how to accept when somebody doesn't like me. You know, it's really hard for me, which is unfortunate. I mean, but but I also don't think it's an uncommon syndrome for a comedian. Yeah. Um, and what a good profession to pick. <sighs> I know. So um, she, uh, you know, and I remember we had a class like... I remember she, where she had a class, and I waited for her to come out of class and so I could speak to her. And I said, you know, I really want to work things out. And she goes, well, I don't. She just spun on her heel and walked away. And it was like everything started to unravel for me. I just felt like emotionally, like, sucker punched, and I just couldn't deal with it. Did you blame yourself or did you think this is her issue? I just want to repair this or both? I don't recall. I honestly don't recall. 
Um, but I can only imagine that in some ways I blame myself because or else I wouldn't have felt like so weak. Yeah. You know? So I transferred for a semester to Queens College and lived with my parents just to get away um, from Albany. And um, and uh, then went back for my final semester. But that was the beginning of when I feel think a lot of things went south for me because then I sought therapy while I was there and um, I started to lose weight. Not, But not in a healthy way. I don't think so, but I remember she and I, this friend and I, before we had split, got these diet pills together. And I don't remember how much we took and they were non-amphetamines, but they were still diet pills and appetite suppressants. And and I had, I guess, I guess I had enough left. And I started taking, you know, I I started losing weight. And then I think I just started to cut back on my food more and more and more. I mean, obviously, I had to cut back a lot because, I mean, my top weight in college that I knew of was 127. <clears throat> and then to get down to 84 and a half, that was a third of my body. You got down to 84 in college? No, it was a little after college, okay. 84 and a half. I guess it was like right after, maybe a year or two after college. What would you think or feel when you would deny yourself food? So powerful. I remember going shopping with my mom and... um uh, it was the middle of the afternoon, and she said, "I'm so, I'm really uh, I'm really hungry." And I said, "Well, just you know, use your willpower. Uh, you feel you know you'll feel good, and 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 like trying to like cheerlead her into uh, not eating. And you know, I'm, of course, I would get headaches, and but I I mean, I felt so powerful. Not what eating. would when would the power? feel the most powerful when you would feel pangs of hunger and you would ignore them or were looking at yourself in the mirror um seeing how much weight you lost that day yeah weight loss definitely seeing my hip bones seeing my ribs um this thing that i would do when i was in the shower i would like squat down and if i there wasn't any like if my flesh didn't roll in my midsection, then I would like feel that I was, you know, doing really well. It was, it was uh, on a good path. Um, no, I hated feeling hunger. I hated feeling hunger. But anything that I do, but I would, I mean, I guess to get myself to that point, I would have to feel hunger and not feed it, you know. Maybe, I mean, you know, as it went along gradually, probably my stomach shrunk, you know, from not being fed. I mean, because that's a lot of person to lose. When you were down to 84 pounds, what would people say to you? I knew you were going to say that. Um, Well, a lot of times I would hear that um, you look like a concentration camp victim. And I would say, oh, really? Oh, gee. And meanwhile thinking, 
all right, that's really good. That's what I'm, that was what I was uh, hoping for. Not particularly, but. Not necessarily that version of skinny. Right. But, but that means that's, um, this is good. They think I'm really skinny. This is good. And I'll be able to get some extra work when uh, Schindler's List gets made. That's right. 20 years from now. That's right. Um, I didn't even think of that. But, um, I mean, anytime anyone uh, conveyed concern about how I looked, I would feign my own concern. And then I would, but I would feel you you like proud and euphoric and triumphant. And did that clashing between your idea and their idea ever set off any kind of alarm bells in you or make you think this is something I should maybe look at or was just the euphoria of the accomplishment so powerful that you, you didn't know, want to look it's at inter- that? It's interesting because in the in the family therapy tape that's in my show, uh, at the beginning I'm talking, you know, just telling my therapist um, why I, you know, what, what I know about anorexia. And, and I basically told her that I felt that I couldn't uh, do anything else really well. So I decided to do something that I could do really well, which is to be skinny. And I keep thinking about that comment that my mom made, like her telling me, oh, no, she's very special, you know, that that was my way of being special. And I did get a lot of attention. And then when, you know, and nobody nobody said that I looked good at that weight, but when I started to gain a little bit of weight and was still quite thin, would start to get um, positive feedback because it's a very, I mean, very sadly, it's a very obsessed culture with skinny. It is. And and I think it's one of the unfortunate diseases that gets compliments. You know, nobody says to somebody shooting up heroin is, you know, that's the right syringe on you. That, right. Just that amount of dope looks really good. Right. Oh, you. yeah. You get a lot of positive reinforcement for being too skinny because it makes other people money a lot also. Um, and people envy it. I mean, nobody envies, obviously, nobody envies a fat person. Mm-hmm. Nobody. It's, but, you know, it's, there's so many interesting things about skinny. Uh, it also scares people because... I've tried many times to uh, talk about being anorexic on stage, and my God, (laughs) does that stop a room cold? Oh, my God. It takes all the air out of the room. But you can talk about being fat on stage, um, but people don't want to. It's it's too frightening. It's too frightening to people. And I really think part of it is because of that concentration camp victim kind of skinniness you know that's i think that's part of it anyway when did you start going to support groups for that for that and for um other issues because you go to two different support, right. support groups um i started 20 feb i guess it was 1986 so it's 27 years ago 
a little over 27 years ago. You went to one for the for the for di- eating eating disorder. disorder. Yeah. What was was there an event or a a bottom that made you think I need to go here? What what was the impetus to well, go? Well, this is great actually. Uh and this is pretty embarrassing stuff and we and love stu- that on I know show. and this is stuff that I don't share outside of my support group but I will because I think this could help people um, I had a great therapist when I moved here wonderful and I only had her for about six months because she died oh my and God. I know but it, and it was as if she was this angel who came in and out of my life and um, she Recommended that I check out one of these groups uh, in November of 85. And my mother had recommended this years ago. And anything that my mother recommended is, you know, is it's kryptonite. It is, exactly. So, um, so, okay, so I I went and it was kind of creepy for me. It was in a church basement, which was a, I was. You know, I was not comfortable in that environment at that point in my life. And now it's fine, just fine. But I think I think I grew up in a pretty insular uh, environment. Anyway, I was in a church basement and they said certain prayer that I thought was kind of creepy and held hands. And it wasn't it didn't feel good. And next session, she asked me what I thought of it. And I told her and she goes, okay. And she left it alone, something that my mom would never do. Then uh, a couple of months later, she, or a few months later, she brought up that there was a support group that was like this one, but was more specific to my particular eating disorder. And she said, she, she gave me the number of a woman and she said, give her a call, talk to her about it. I said, okay. And I, I would do anything this woman suggested because I just loved her. And so I called this woman and we talked and she told me about this particular uh, group. And she said, yeah, she said, you wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't, uh, can't believe some of the stories that you hear there. And she said, like, for instance, this one woman was sharing that she would sometimes uh, swallow food, <coughs> excuse me, and then she would like kind of bring it up again and chew it again and swallow it again and and do this a few times when it was still food, not, not bile. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, wow, gee. And, um, and we hung up and I thought, my God. Somebody does what I've been doing. And I'd never heard of anyone ever doing that before. It was such a dark secret. And uh, and the reason I did it was because it saved me like bites of food. You know, I would like make a bite of food last for 10 bites of food. Um, this is how fucking nuts I was kind of genius um it's kind of a sick well it genius. Fit, you know it, yeah I mean I figured out how to do it nobody taught me I figured out how to do it um so I figured I'm gonna have to go check out this place and I went the next time the group met and immediately I felt 
like I was in the right place immediately. Um, and it was important for me initially to meet with people who had issues that were very much the same as my, my symptoms on the surface, you know? Um, and as time went by, that didn't matter anymore. It was I just, about the feelings inside. It was, right, yeah. right. It's so important early, I think, in your first 20 visits to a support group to hear somebody's story that makes you feel less alone. It, it, yes. I don't know if I would have kept going if, if I hadn't heard um, my story because my story is not typical. It's, um, it's all the inside. The drama was all inside. Uh-huh. On the outside, my life seemed totally fine. And so once I heard a similar emotional right. inside and a kind of a non-dramatic outside, I was right. like, okay, I'm, I'm in. And I, I urge people that are going to support groups for the first time um, to, to give it a shot, give it mm-hmm. a good shot. And it's totally normal to want to sit in the back and want to run and to be looking at your watch and thinking, why am I around these fucking losers? Right. Um, I think that's totally, totally right. normal. And I don't think anybody rolls into a support group and thinks, yay, I've found the solution. It, it comes later, right. but it's um, usually it's just, it feels like traffic school almost. Well, I mean, for me, like I said, when I went to that particular group that, you know, which was my second time, I knew I was, I, I knew I was home because the stories were so, so similar to my stories. Um, <laughs> what a gift to be able to get that so early. Right. Actually, you know, now this many years later, I find myself looking at my watch and wanting to run. What do you think that's about? Because I feel so lost. It's not that I feel, you know, that I don't belong there so much. Um, I you just feel... Feel like you lost your way? Oh, God, de- definitely. Yeah, I feel like I've lost my way. What do you think has led to that? Have you well, stopped connecting to the people there or stopped doing the, the work? Um... Well, I've stopped believing in something higher out there. And um, because I feel like, why are these bad things happening? You know, why? After things were going so great, you know. And I'm I'm sure I'm not the first person on the planet to feel that way, you know. But uh, yeah, I I'm, I recall a guy in my support group who had been unemployed for eight years and was <sighs> bouncing from apartment to apartment because he couldn't pay rent, sleeping on people's couches, and not only had. St- kind of stopped believing in something but was like vehemently angry at people that did Mm 
mm-hmm. because it's like if there is a god or a higher power what kind of a fucking asshole mm-hmm. is this power right or what kind of a piece of shit am i that i'm being made to suffer yeah and, i got some of that and and then one day he got his dream job <laughs> and is now gainfully employed and is able to look back and see that there were things in that struggle that strengthened him that he now can draw upon. And, um, you know, I know it sounds very Pollyanna-ish of, of me to say that, but I know countless people, myself included, I wouldn't be doing this gig if it didn't look like dinner and a movie was was falling apart. You know, mm-hmm. I knew that I needed a second phase of something to do with my time. Right. And if I had still been making, you know, what I was making in 2007 before my money was cut um, and the show was still going on, I don't know if I if I would be if I would be doing this. And I'm so grateful because I, I feel so much more meaning in my life. And I just want to encourage you to look for the beauty in the pain mm-hmm. and the forced gym membership for your soul that, <laughs> that you're that you're going through. Right. You know, I th- I it sounds to me like doing your show will be a really great way to yeah. express what's inside you and to put that out there for other people because yeah. I think if we don't put it out there for other people it's a little bit of a waste. Because they don't get the chance to feel less alone. They don't get the chance to maybe have an epiphany of of their own. Our pain can be beautiful epiphanies for other people. You know, I think I'm scared to do this because I'm scared it's not going to be funny enough. I'm scared that people are going to be bored. Um, And it's just a whole, it's a different venue for me. I think if you ask yourself, am I truly expressing what's inside of me, you're good. You will right. be good and just keep coming back to that. Right. I second guess myself, as the listener knows, mm-hmm. constantly. Mm-hmm. I'll say something and agonize over it, um, beat myself up. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's who I am, this imperfect person that panics, that they're disappearing that they're going to be invisible that their life is forgettable that they're not special right and it comes out in ways that are awkward Mm -hmm. and kind of pathetic sometimes Mm -hmm. um but i'm learning to own it and say it helps other people to Mm -hmm. see me make mistakes right yeah i mean you want to you want to be you want to be flawed or else you're not interesting i mean any character in any film or novel is flawed the good ones yeah um who did your surveys did you you I, I, I came up with the questions oh, they're great i mean i it was i mean i didn't have i barely had time to look at them they're just they're, they're so vast um now, the one about therapy was was uh, come up with by my friend katie who is a a, a new newly uh licensed therapist but the, the other ones were questions that i came up with 
Oh man, and you, the information there. And does anybody? Everybody I saw was anonymous. Does anybody yes. give names? Uh, some people will give their names, um, but I encourage people to not, so that they can right. We'll um, be honest. Yeah, we'll be honest. But uh, you know, my hat is off to the people that do use their their actual names. Um, right. Because there should be no shame around this, but easier said than done. I'm not using my actual name on this show, by the way. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, am I? Okay. <laughs> um, Kathy Ladman, thank you so much for coming and, and sharing your, your, your inner life with us. Oh, my us. God. This is great. I, this is a great podcast. I can understand why you like hugging your listeners. I mean, anybody okay. drawn to this is very huggable. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And uh, I look forward to standing up and giving you a hug in about five seconds. Okay. All right. One, two, three, four, five. Thank you, Kathy. <laughs> many, many thanks to uh, to Kathy. It's really nice to get to, to know her better. And uh, I just emailed her, and she is doing a staged reading of her play. The play is called Does This Show Make Me Look Fat? And she's going to be doing it in Woodstock, New York on the night of uh, January 17th at 8 o'clock p.m. So uh, if you want more details on that, you're going to be in the area, you want to check it out, go to her website, kathyladman.com. Um, before we take it out with some surveys, I want to remind you guys there's a couple of different ways to support the show if you feel so inclined. Um, the website, as I mentioned, is mentalpod.com. You can go there and make a one-time PayPal donation or, as you know, my favorite, a uh, recurring monthly donation for as little as five bucks a month. Once you set it up, you don't have to do anything unless you decide to cancel it or your credit card expires. Super, super simple to do. And God bless those of you that uh, that donate to the show. It uh, means the world to me. You can also support the show by uh, when you shop at Amazon, enter through the search portal on our homepage, right-hand side, about halfway down. Make sure your ad blocker isn't on. I think it won't show up on some browsers if your ad blocker is on. And... Um, you can support us by buying a coffee, um, not through Amazon, but through um, uh, the links on our, our site. You can buy a uh, mental illness happy hour coffee mug. You can buy T-shirts. We now have ladies' uh, shirts. Um, you can buy coffee. Um, and I think I've shared before that you can go to the website and fuck yourself. I can't remember if uh, if we put that link up uh, to that <laughs> Uh, you can support us non-financially by giving us a, right, a nice write, <laughs> a nice rating on iTunes, writing something nice about us, or spreading the word through social media. Um, let's kick it off with a. Uh, this is a survey from Shame and Secrets survey filled out by a woman who calls herself uh, Got Hand. I think I'm reading it correctly. Uh, she is. Straight, in her 20s, raised in a stable and safe environment, never been sexually abused, uh, never been physically abused, but she has been emotionally abused, although she puts, not sure, my best friend of three years constantly made me feel guilty. She guilted me for hanging out with other people. She guilted me for weighing more than her. When I starved myself, she guilted me for weighing less than her. She guilted me for everything, and when I finally called her on it, she promised me she would change for a month. And then she began again. Now I know I'm no longer friends with her. However, she switched from guilting me to guilting my friend who also has an eating disorder. Um, I feel like I've read this survey before, but uh, if, if I did, uh, apologies. Enjoy my slide into Alzheimer's. 
Um, if you've been abused, are there positive experiences with the abusers? She writes, yes, we were best friends for years. Deepest, darkest thoughts. I'm hurting everyone around me and I don't know how to stop. I want to be dead, but I want to be in love. I want to have sex with my English teacher. Deepest, darkest secrets. I stole drugs from my dad and alcohol from my mom. I've gone to more bars than I can count on both hands before I was 18. Um, I've kissed complete strangers. I forced myself to throw up on the way home from elementary school at least once a week. Uh, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Having sex with teachers and older men. I have a stable relationship with my dad, too. Not sexual at all. Gag. I also have fantasies about men like serial killers who could easily kill me, fucking me, and sometimes cutting my stomach and throat with knives while we fuck. It makes me feel dirty and slutty and like there is something wrong with me. The blood and murder part. Uh, What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'm in love with you, but I am not good enough for you. Wow, that is deep. That is fucking deep. Um, What, if anything, do you wish for? Being able to eat normally and not care about my weight. Uh, have you shared these things with others? No, I'm too scared and I don't think I want to get better. Now I know why I printed this survey out. I mean, I knew when I started reading it, but this, this one just, um, she's so open. She's so, um, how do you feel after writing these things down? I'm scared. I want to cry. Oh, I just want to hug you. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I'm so sorry. Oh, that one breaks my heart and makes me want to hug her. Please reach out to someone. Don't go through that by yourself. Join the forum. That'd be a good place. I know there's a lot of people that would welcome you with open arms. Um, This is from a new survey, which I am in fucking love with. And I think I uh, gave a little call to action last week asking you guys to, to come fill out the awful some moments survey. And, um, and I wasn't getting a lot of people. <laughs> and then the listener emailed me and went, Paul, there's no link up on the website. Oh, yeah, that might be hindering it. Um, so, yeah, uh, an awful some moment is something that kind of made you want to laugh and cry at the same time. This one was filled out by Odin, who's uh, in their 30s. And writes, my wife tried to cheat on me while she was pregnant. When she confessed, we had sort of makeup sex, and I was crying and calling her a fucking bitch the whole time we were fucking. God damn it, do I love that new survey. Every time I see that somebody's filled it out, I get so excited. Um, this is from the Shame and Secret survey, filled out by a woman who calls herself Sunny Days. She is straight, in her 40s. Raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused, um, ever been physically or emotionally abused, not sure. My husband neglected me. He checked out of our marriage after our daughter was born and began distancing himself from me. I noticed that he told her that he loved her all the time, but rarely said it to me. When my mother died, he gave me no emotional support. In fact, I suspect he started cheating on me shortly after. Two months after her death, he announced he was no longer happy in our marriage. Uh, I moved out two months later. I asked him many times if we could try to work out our issues. He never had any interest. I can't understand why he married me and got me pregnant if he had no intention of putting any effort into our relationship. Uh, She didn't answer if there were any positive experiences with him. Uh, Deepest, darkest thoughts, killing myself. I could never do this to my daughter, but I think about it at least weekly. Um, 
with effort, I think we could get that up to daily. I want you to read my book called, I don't know, insert, insert humor, humorous name, Deepest Darkest Secrets. After I separated from my husband, I texted him all the time to let him know how miserable he made me and how much I thought about dying. I did this because I knew how susceptible to guilt he is and that he would lose sleep and get stomach ulcers. Four and a half years later, I still occasionally manipulate him with guilt when we have a disagreement. I never feel guilty about it. Thank you for sharing that. That's um, that's what I love about these surveys is that people just fucking let loose the stuff that that we really are ashamed of. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Being pulled over by a hot cop and him initiating rough sex against my car. Um, I hope it's your car parked safely to the side of the road and that there are flares and looky-loos and uh, and a fifth thing that just caps this this bit what if anything do you wish for to find a loving partner who's willing to communicate and put the effort in over the long haul I also wish to find success as a serial entrepreneur does a serial killer count as a uh, serial entrepreneur I guess you'd have to make money from it You'd have to sell your trophies, which, as we know, serial killers do not do because they're not sellouts. Have you shared these things with others? Yes. How do you feel after writing these things down? Okay. Thank you for sharing that, Sunny Days. This is from my favorite survey, Awfulsome Moments, filled out by D, who is 17. Uh, I'd recently come out as gay to my dad, and he was extremely disappointed. He'd raised concerns that I was thinking about my sexuality too much AK at all. I mean, I was 14. What else is there to do? Visiting our cousins for Christmas, we were cramped into a room in their house. I slept on the floor. He was on the bed. At 11 p.m., I could hear orgasmic moaning coming from his phone. Porn. Seriously. The hypocrisy of it all was mortifying then, hilarious now. He was so angry, I dared to ponder my sexuality, and here he was shoving it in my face. That is that is the definition of awfulsome. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by Betty, who is, uh, she's gay, she's in her 30s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, ever been the victim of sexual abuse, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. I can't remember things properly, but past therapist suspect it's the case. At the same time, I can be so self-destructive, becoming blackout drunk alone with older unknown men playing up to them like pushing something closer to the edge of a cliff until it slips off the edge uh she's been emotionally abused but doesn't uh qualify it um deepest darkest thoughts being raped in a variety of different ways it's how i climax deepest darkest secrets sometimes i worry that i might be a compulsive liar sexual fantasy is most powerful to you Daddy role play and rape. As a lesbian in a wonderfully happy relationship with a woman, it makes me feel like a messed up freak. Um, well, I want to give you a hug and say that, you know, don't try to make sense of of that stuff. Just embrace that it's there. And uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'm so, so sad and I feel like I've already ruined my capacity to be happy. I want to die all the time, and that makes me feel so alone. I can't tell anyone because I'm ashamed. Everyone expected me to grow up and grow out of it by now, but I think it's just who I am. I, 
I would disagree. I don't think wanting to die is how any of us are supposed to be. I think it's a sign that that we need either healing or medical help. That's my two cents. What, if anything, do you wish for? Just to feel normal. If I'm sad, I want it to be because something sad happened. I want it I want to be able to drink without constantly worrying that I'm sliding into alcoholism. You know, your drinking might be a thing to look at. That might be a, you know, that might be a, a really good place to start. Maybe check out a support group or talk to a therapist about it. Have you shared these things with others? A long time ago, I'm, uh, I'm so lucky because my friends were incredible, helped me get help, and supported me. But I can't be a broken record. I needed them to feel like I was fine again after a while. Well, it, it makes it sounds to me like you gave up on the help that you reached that you reached out for, or that they weren't experienced enough in these issues that there could be sustaining support. That's why I think support groups are so great because they're people who are living the same thing we are. Um, How do you feel after writing these things down? Better. I'm dying to be heard. I know that it is so, so narcissistic. No, it's not. But I want to be able to say to another person that my inner pain is so intense, it feels like uh, it'll split my body apart. Oh, you you would do so well in a support group. You would do so well. You would help other people too. Your ability to express what's going on inside you would help other people in addition to yourself. And now I'm stepping off my soapbox. This is from Awfulsome Moments, filled out by Abby, who's uh, between 18 and 19. I hate that I picked that age range. What the fuck was I was I thinking with that? Her Awfulsome Moment, sitting in the back of the car with my 33-year-old fuck buddy's 9-year-old son and not knowing whether I feel more like a partner or feel like his daughter. When I'm sitting next to that 9-year-old, I feel like his mom and his sister at the same time. I finally feel part of a loving family for the first time. That is awfulsome. This is from the Shouldn't Feel This Way survey, filled out by a guy who calls himself Odin. He is straight in his 30s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. What would you like people to say about your, your at your funeral? He was a devoted father. How does writing that make you feel? Sad for my children. Um, uh I should feel relieved that my wife took a misdemeanor plea in her criminal case, but I don't feel physically ill that she is that she is either a coward and pleaded to something she didn't do or a liar because she swears to me that she didn't do it. I would much rather be married to a felon than either of those choices. Oh, I, I read that wrong. I should feel relieved that my wife took a misdemeanor plea deal in her criminal case, but I don't. I feel physically ill that she is either a coward and pleaded to something she didn't do or a liar because she swears to me that she didn't do it. It's amazing when somebody leaves a period out how uh, differently the sentence reads. Uh, How does it make you feel to write your feelings out? Extremely depressed, ungrateful, and like a horrible, uncaring husband. Do you think you're abnormal for feeling what you do? Yes, I think most people don't value honor as highly as I do. Would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better about yourself? I suppose. Thank you for sharing that, Odin. And um, it might be a good thing. That would be difficult to to talk to your wife about, but that's a big-ass thing to sweep under the rug, you know, and to not express. So I would talk to somebody about it and then hopefully work your way towards expressing how you feel to her, hopefully in a way that's diplomatic. 
This is from the same survey filled out by um, a woman who calls herself Gus. She's straight. She's between 13 and 19. Uh, what would you like people to say at your funeral? She was smart and worked hard and well. This is wishing hard, um, but loving. I don't know if that makes sense to me. How does that writing that make you feel? Sad because it is a long shot. Uh, how do you use a time machine? I would go back to my childhood and try to figure out what went wrong. It wouldn't have to be a very powerful time machine. Uh, I'm supposed to feel confident about God, but I don't. I feel confused and ashamed that I feel confused. I'm supposed to feel safe when I go to sleep, but I don't. I feel terrified. I'm supposed to feel like a member of my family, but I don't. I feel like an outsider. I feel like they are just being nice to me because they feel bad for me or feel like they have to. I feel like I can never please them or be who they want me to be. Oh, my heart goes out to you. That's going to be a really tough, isolated um, place to be. How does it make you feel to write your feelings out? Refreshed. Do you think you're abnormal for feeling what you do? Yes, but a lot of people are abnormal. You don't sound abnormal to me. Um, you sound like somebody in a difficult situation who is having normal feelings. Would writing other people, would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better? A little, but I want answers and solutions, not just friends. Oh, you know what I'm going to say about that. Support group. Maybe something like Alateen, if there's addiction in your family. I don't know. Um, go to NAMI.org. Uh, maybe see what kind of free support groups they, they have. Get on the, uh, join the forum and uh, put feelers out there. There's some great, great uh, people on the forum that have great advice. Um, from Awful Some Moments survey, fit out, filled out by a person who uh, calls himself Kitsune. Uh, I was having a long text conversation with a guy I'd been sleeping with, but we were not officially a couple. He was telling me he trusted me more than anyone in his life and wanted to finally tell me something he'd been wanting to say for days, etc. I was convinced this was it. He was admitting he loved me after six months and we could be together. I was giddy and excited. But what he said next was, I have pus coming out of the tip of my penis and it is really scary. Is that always bad? I wanted to smash my face into my desk and scream, but instead I laughed, shook my head, and sent, yes, go to the doctor. Awfulsome. Fucking awfulsome. This is from a rarely taken survey. Um, young male abused by older female, filled out by a guy who calls himself uh, Northeast Mike or N.E. Mike. Um, he writes, let's see, how old is he? He was raised in a stable and safe environment. He's straight in his 40s. Um, he writes, I don't remember for sure how old I was, but I think it started when I was 15 and she was in her late 30s. I was a geek, and at the time, we didn't have the internet, but we did have a community that was based around bulletin board systems and modems. We referred to ourselves as modemers, and we had a small group that would get together socially from time to time. I had only had one sexual experience where I touched and sucked on my girlfriend's breasts and we were naked together but nothing happened and she dumped me not too long after that. I was relating this failed sexual foray to a woman that I met on the BBSs and she was very kind and told me that it was too bad that I got started out that way. Sometime after that I was at a party at her house and I was going to leave and she offered to walk me out. 
We hugged outside and she gave me a deep kiss that made me dizzy. I remember wondering if it had really happened and then later thinking that it must have uh, been because she was drinking and that she did it. I asked her via email if it was the booze and she said no, that she wanted to do it and was glad that I liked it. This was the beginning of a multi-year relationship that included us having sex at her house several times and continued through her getting engaged and marrying another guy and me having various girlfriends in high school. I don't remember everything, but I do recall sitting on her couch while she masturbated me with a paper towel handy and a and smoked a cigarette. Boy, there's a visual. And one time when we were having sex, when I came to her house after school and her husband came home in the middle of it and we had to scramble and I had to make up an excuse about being so sweaty because it was hot in school and we had no air conditioning. I also remember going to her house for a party when I was a senior in high school and bringing my girlfriend and her putting her hands down my pants when we were alone in her bedroom and telling me that she didn't know about this girlfriend thing and that she was jealous. This was after she was already married. Eventually, she became pregnant. She told me that she didn't know if it was mine or her husband's because we both had had sex with her around the same time the baby was conceived. It wasn't long after this that I lost touch with her, and several years later, I heard that she had COPD due to her smoking, and I'm pretty sure she is dead now. That would make great lyrics for a song, by the way. I want to I wanna email those to, uh, to uh, Don McLean. Uh, or an older reference than him. (laughs) Um, It took me a very long time, but eventually I came to the realization that what happened to me was not right and that it may even be classified as molestation. Uh, Beyond might even be, is. You know, that is a sexual crime that happened. Um, I did have orgasms and I was getting laid and all, but I was emotionally immature for my age, and I don't know that I could have really given consent at the time. It was definitely not normal, and I wish it had not happened to me. It gave me a twisted point of view on sex, that it was dirty and needed to be hidden, and that it was okay to have sex outside of a relationship. I cheated on every girlfriend that I had until I met the woman who would eventually become my wife and then my ex-wife. When I finally got the guts to tell my wife that I'd been molested, she recoiled and told me I had better go, quote, talk to someone about that. And I believe that in that moment may have been the beginning of the end of our marriage. I have since told one girlfriend about it. She was shocked by it and somewhat stunned, I think. Her response was more or less that it wasn't molestation because I was a teenager and it was with a woman. You have no idea how angry that makes me. Oh my God, does that make me angry? And I have told a couple of female friends that my therapist... Uh, and my therapist. Um, I am only now at the age of 42 realizing the ways that this relationship over two decades ago has impacted me. I feel that it was molestation, but I also feel guilty calling it that as I am taking away or minimizing the experiences of people who were, quote, really molested. No, you are not. Uh, Somehow the fact that I was a teenage boy and she was an older woman teaching me about sex is supposed to make it cool or make me lucky, but it doesn't feel like either of those things. And trust your feelings. Trust your feelings around those things. Your feelings are not are not lying to you. It makes me feel sad to wonder where I would be now if I had had a more normal sexual upbringing. I'm not angry with her and I have no desire to villainize her 
to other people, but I wish that things had been different. I have so much shame about what happened and guilt about how I have disrespected the women in my life by cheating on them. I do not want to be that kind of person who cheats, but I have done it so many times and it feels terrible. The guilt is almost overwhelming at times. I contracted genital herpes and I'm not sure who gave it to me, but I'm pretty sure it was from one of the women I cheated with and it feels like it may be something I earned with my bad behavior. Oh, buddy. I want to give you a big hug. I feel that I don't really know how much damage was done to me. I think that she did not have bad intentions, but both she and I should have, quote, known better and not done it. Now, she should have known better. Um, I never told her no, but I should have. Uh, I wish I would have. It was neither innocent uh, nor natural. My heart goes out to you, buddy. This is, uh, these next couple of ones are, well, this one's kind of, this is the definition of awfulsome, filled out by Danielle in her 30s. One of the men, and she had emailed me previously to this and has a sense of humor. Um, I suppose it's clear she has a sense of humor because she filled this out, but part of me didn't want to read this because I'm like, oh, God. What is awesome about this? And I think the only thing that's awesome about it is how awful and just, all right, just fucking read it, Paul. One of the men who sexually abused me when I was a child has hooks for hands. I shit you not, at the time he had plastic arms from the elbows down and metal hooks for hands from the wrists down. The hooks opened so he could grab a hold of things. Unfortunately, one of the things he grabbed a hold of was my elementary school-aged ass while he French-kissed me. I Google him every year or two to see if he is finally dead. No such luck. Every one of those bastards who sexually abused me is still alive, but at least I can laugh about this one since, really, how many people can say they've been sexually abused by a man with hook for hands? hooks for hands? Please don't answer that. I like to believe that I am the only one who has been abused by my abusers, even though I know it's not true. Fucking scumbags, every one of them. I know that one was kind of a little hard to, um, probably hard to hear, but I think that's what this show, that's our wheelhouse, the shit that's hard to hear. This is from a uh, this is from a lighter a lighter survey being hospitalized. Um, this was filled out by Tabitha. She is uh, asexual, and oh, I didn't get the. I didn't get her age on this. I for some reason I only have just this one page, but I'm going to read it anyway. Uh, I've been hospitalized via 5150 five times for suicide attempts. Each time I overdosed intending to die using my prescription meds and some over-the-counter meds. And each time I woke up 16 to 30 hours later. The first time I answered my phone after being out for 30 hours and it was my psychiatrist. I could hardly talk. I was so drugged. He made me promise to take a cab to the emergency room. I somehow managed to get there. Answering the phone only to find my psychiatrist on the other end while coming out of the drugged nothingness of the overdose got me hospitalized three more times. And one time 
I'd admitted that I'd overdosed over the weekend to my DBT therapist and she 5150'd me. I have also overdosed many times without anyone but my best friend's knowledge. I think I've OD'd at least 10 times. Um, describe your experience as a patient or visitor in the hospital. My first and second experience as a patient was at the county psych hospital. It was bare bones in the emergency area where I spent most of my first night. Cots with blankets filled with filled the large main room. I chose one and tried to sleep. I remember that I just didn't care where I was. I felt numb. Something in the middle of the night, sometime in the middle of the night, I was transferred to the psych ward upstairs. It was grim up there. During the day, most people looked depressed and just sat as far apart from each other as possible in the big main room. I was in that room. One guy tried to touch uh, all of the girl's boobs. My roommate stole my deodorant twice, and I got it uh, free from the don't bother us desk. One girl did laps around the room over and over all day long. There was nothing to do. I was there for three days, and there was one group that whole time. The staff was rude, and I kept waiting and waiting to meet with the psychiatrist so I could get out of there. When I finally got to talk to him, he said, laughing, that if I really wanted to die, why didn't I drink a bunch of alcohol or bleach along with the pills? I thought that was bizarre. Yeah, I think that's fucking horrible. Um, But I did try one of his ideas in a subsequent attempt in contrast. Um, I have had health insurance during my last three psych hospital stays. Therefore, I was sent to a private hospital. It was such a different experience. The staff was very friendly, and there were therapeutic groups, including art and music, all day. The counselors who ran the groups were so positive and interested in us. The hospital was also smaller and therefore led to a sense of camaraderie among some of the patients. In general, I would say, though, that in each of my hospitalizations, I was definitely scared on some level because several times during my different stays, I would have a nightmare that I was hospitalized only to wake up in that very place. I also didn't feel like myself or anyone. I just went through the motions, convinced my psychiatrist each time that I was ready to leave within three days, made a pretty obvious plan with my social worker. I will attend my psychiatric appointment on Friday, but I never once lost my desire to die, and I went home and tried again. So no, it was not very helpful. Although as I think about it, what my psychiatrist and therapist have said when encouraging me to go to the hospital is, you'll be safe there, and that's not nothing. Thank you for that, Tabitha. And this is, I'm going to read one more survey. I was going to go to the, to the, to the last one, but I want to read one more because this guy's story touches me. He calls himself Mr. Sad, and he is gay. He's in his 30s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional uh, environment, ever been the victim of sexual abuse. Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. When I was growing up, my father would constantly say sexually suggestive things in front of me and my sisters. When I turned about 12 years old, he started taking an interest in my sexuality. He would constantly suggest that I was masturbating in front of other family and friends. Oh, he would constantly suggest that I was masturbating in front of uh, other family and friends whenever I was in my room or using the bathroom. He would ask to see if my pants were wet with semen from jacking off. He made slash let me watch movies with lots of sexual content. He took me to movies where he knew there would be female nudity. When a scene with a naked woman would occur on screen, I'd see him watching me out of the corner of my eye to see how I was reacting. Oh, man, this is is hard to listen to. 
He made comments about my sister's bodies, i.e. criticisms um, of their breasts, butts, legs, etc., in front of me and my sisters. He always wanted to hear what kind of sexual fantasies I had about women. As I, By the way, full-on sexual abuse. Full-on. Um, as I progressed through puberty, I came to the realization that I was attracted to men and women. I still don't know if this is just because my father ruined heterosexuality for me. I have intense feelings of internalized shame and self-loathing to this day in my 30s, and I have never been in a loving relationship, though I want to be. Sexuality makes me very uncomfortable, and I hate being gay. I feel like I'll be alone for the rest of my life. I know what he did was a form of sexual abuse, but I hate calling it that because I know people have had to deal with things like molestation and rape. Boy, this sounds so similar to the um, the guy with the older the older woman. Um, some people I've told about it have told me that I should be happy that I had a cool dad and stop being such a melodramatic pussy. Oh, fuck those people in the strongest sense of the word. Um, those people sound beyond toxic. They're toxic and fucking ignorant. Um you ever been physically or emotionally abused? Yes, he's been both. Uh, a clearly emotional abuse from your dad. Um, he divorced my mother when I was two or three years old and, and remarried. He had a child with a new wife who became my stepmother. However, she was extremely jealous. I was forbidden to use my real mother's name in her presence. Holy fuck. In order to prove that he loved her, uh, she wanted my father to beat me because I was bad, so he did. She'd also become upset if he brought something for me for a present, even if he also brought my half-sibling's presents. If he ever brought me so much as a piece of candy or took me to a movie, he'd warn me, don't tell mommy. On Christmas and my birthday, he'd give me things such as books he'd finished reading or bargain bin stuff, while my half-sibling would get mountains of wrapped toys and video games. When I was 11 years old, he brought me the official Donald Trump board game for Christmas. That's a fucking, this paragraph could qualify as awfulsome. Um, he couldn't have expressed his disdain for Marie Clear if he had taken a shit on my chest. Uh, did you have any positive experiences with your abuser? I wouldn't even have contact with my father if I wasn't trapped in a situation where I needed to depend on family to get by. I don't know if that really qualifies as positive, though. Deepest dark. Oh, I, th I guess he's saying no. Um, deepest, darkest thoughts? Mostly suicidal. I've grown accustomed to thinking of death as release and relief. The only reason I don't kill myself is because it would hurt people I care about. Uh, I really uh, encourage you and uh, the, the guy I read earlier um, to seek out some type of healing from, from um, sexual trauma. There's some really great support groups and rehabs and yeah. Deepest, darkest secrets. When I was seven, I asked a question about AIDS. My father beat the shit out of me bad. Then he freaked out because I was covered with bruises and he didn't want to go to jail. He went to his parents for help. And though they were upset, they convinced me to tell teachers and classmates that I'd fallen out of a tree or down a flight of stairs. They made me cover up the severe bruising with clothing, even though we live in a very hot area. Oh, just my heart goes out to you. My heart goes out to you. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you, being raped by older men. <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> I fucking love this guy. God damn it, do I love this guy. Oh. 
What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to be able to communicate in such a way to make it unambiguously clear how my father and other family members have hurt me and my siblings, but there is no language strong enough to penetrate their levels of denial. I feel you, buddy. I feel you. I think everybody's listening to me reading this survey is fucking outraged at the abuse that you endured and how it's just piled on and piled on. And um, what, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I could have a normal life with a family and children. I want to love and be loved so badly, but I think I will probably be alone until I die. I am bro- I'm a broken and ruined human being. Well, you know what I say about that. You know how strongly I disagree with that idea. Have you shared these things with others? Shared them with my therapist when I had health insurance. Um, I want to stress again, Google Lofi therapy in the name of your area or call 211 from a landline and you can usually find um, some, some, if not um, free, uh, affordable therapy. And uh, how do you feel after writing these things down? It's like I've scratched an itchy sore. Satisfying but painful at the same time. Really painful. Um, well, we appreciate you experiencing that, um, writing it down despite experiencing that. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I'd share my life with them if I wasn't so broken and ugly. Oh, my God. Please go to the forum and, and open up and let some people love you. Let some people, because there are a lot of people who've experienced similar stuff on the forum, and um, oh, your survey just touched me so fucking deeply. We love you, Mr. Sad. We love you. Uh, finally, I want to read a happy moment, and this is from uh, Fane, and uh, I should qualify on the awfulsome and the happy moments, whether it's male or female. I keep forgetting to put that on there. Anyway, Fane writes, um, I think Fane is female. Uh, I'm not sure how old I was, probably 10 or 9. Uh, we went to an island in Indonesia and stayed right by the beach. My older brother and I found a mass of gigantic rocks and saw a gazebo built atop one of these monstrous rocks. We decided to try and reach it. I was scared of heights, but I wanted to please him, so I did. We started climbing, and halfway up he could see that I was scared, so he climbed really close to me and touched his arm to whatever part of me he could reach whenever I stopped and got scared. He pointed out the easiest routes, the most accessible footholds, and the least sharp crags. I felt like a badass adventurer, Lara Croft, Tomb Raider person about to uncover some forgotten ruin. I felt like a sister who was loved. I felt safe and protected. Oh. Gives me warm fuzzies. Well, thank you guys for uh, for listening. And um, thank you to all the people who filled these surveys out and um, share all of that stuff. Thank you to Kathy and our sponsors and people who transcribe and the monthly donors. And um, I hope I hope this is going to be a good year for for all of us and anybody out there who's feeling stuck. I hope uh, I hope you know that you're not alone and uh, there is hope if you're willing to get out of your comfort zone and ask for help. And uh, thanks for listening.
Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.